Welcome to Discover Ag, where every week we discover what's new in the world of agriculture. We're your host, Natalie Kavoric, a rancher and pharmacist from Nebraska. And Tara Vanderdusen, a dairy farmer and environmental scientist from New Mexico. And together we bring you our professional farming opinions on a variety of trending topics in the ag and food space. So you can better understand our food system and feel connected to the hands that feed us. Welcome back to Discover Ag, you guys, brought to you in part by Case IH. And as you guys can tell from our title... We are bringing you something new today. And not only is it something new, but it is something that is here to stay. Mini interviews. Yes. And this one is a good one. We've hinted at it already in previous episodes, uh, but this one is with Neutral. They are actually a company that we covered an article about them. And now we are bringing on them to interview. Yeah, we're interviewing. Her name is Anne, and she is head of carbon reduction. And it is going to be at the end of our three articles today. So the main part of Thursday is here to stay, you guys. But from now on, randomly, you guys will get a little um, snippet of an interview we do with someone that we think is doing something really cool in the ag and food space. And so, um, yeah, we're just really excited to kick it off with Neutral today. So again, Thursdays will always stay at top three funding articles. But every once in a while, we're going to sprinkle in those experts and bring you guys a little bit more interviews. Yeah. So stick around for the end. Anne was a wealth of knowledge. It's really cool what they're doing and how they're working with farmers and ranchers to produce carbon neutral products like their milk product. Uh, so definitely don't want to miss that. You want to catch it. You know something that the discos also don't want to miss? What? The summer I turned pretty. <laughs> oh, yeah, what is this? You keep texting me about it and I'm confused. I literally just started it yesterday, but I'm fully on board the Summer I Turn Pretty fangirl wagon, you guys. I don't know if any discos listening have read the books or watched the series as well. Um, I know I'm behind the game because they just released season two and so season one had to have come out a while ago. Um, but I kicked it off this weekend and I'm just, you know, obsessed, I guess. So... It's a book, and then they turned it into a TV series. Am I understanding that right? And it's called the The Summer I Turned Pretty. Yeah, it's and called? it's like a coming of age, like teenage, you know, love drama kind of uh, takes place though in Massachusetts, like the shore. Um, they summer there in the beach, and so I don't know. It's just kind of like a, I don't know. If you've watched it, I think you get it, and if you haven't, it, the you explaining it would not get people. I don't think they'd get it. They'd be like, oh, okay, that's what you know, you're know. you into. I think you just got to watch it. And then you can decide for yourself if you're part of it or not. I'm not going to lie. You explaining it was terrible. You were <laughs> like, you have to go watch this. I'm literally crying in the shower. And I was like, I don't want to cry in the shower. And you were like, you're going to love it. I was like, no, I don't think I will. And so you just, I'm not going to lie. You didn't exactly like build it up really well, but this was better. Maybe after this conversation, I'll go watch it. It's so funny because I think being a mother and also having gone through teenage years, it just hits you in so many different ways. You know, if you watched this in like your 20s and you weren't a parent yet, you would only reminisce over like the the teenage years portion of it. But I think being a mother, especially a mother right now who has a teenager, I think it just hit me from like so many different angles that I got so many different like emotions and messages because I feel like I have my hand in so many different parts of like the plot and the characters and stuff. Like I'm just, I don't know. I was though. I finished season one last night. Instead of prepping you guys, I watched the summer <laughs> I turned pretty. So sorry if I am a little less polished in today's episode. Well, I am actually kidless this week because my kids are on vacation with my parents. So I'm actually looking for something to do. I mean, in addition to like the mile long to-do list I have set for myself. So maybe I'll give it a go. Um, I know. How was your kidless weekend at the like exhausting. <laughs> I feel oh. like Daniel and I were like, let's do all the things. Like we have no kids. So let's do everything except for we were like so bored. I don't know. I was like, I thought I had it built it up in my mind. Like it's going to be this such fun weekend. And it was, we had a really good time, but I really missed my kids. And I'm only like two days into my week. So got a few more days ahead of me. I do feel like it's a weird thing to balance as a parent with when you're without your kids, you don't get it right. Like you don't just have the normal amount of like relaxation and to-do list paired together. It's like you either go full. I was so lazy this week and I did absolutely nothing because you need to like 
you just go overboard on that side of it. Or like you do what you guys did, which is like, we have no kids. Let's get every single thing done. It's like, you can't just be a normal functioning adult without kids. Like (laughs) no in between. I know. I seriously have this to-do list. Daniel is going to probably want to murder me by the end of the week. Like every single honey-do list that has been stacking up for the last year is like going to get done in the next two days. So honey-do list. Luke hates honey-do list. So my... um. But I don't know if you guys have listened, but five love languages. My love language is acts of service. And Luke very much so wishes that was not my love language. (laughs) Really? really. He's like anything but that, please. Seriously. (laughs) And his is physical touch, right? No, quality time. Oh, quality time. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. So he wants to be doing nothing together and I want to be doing our list together. So it's, you know. (laughs) (laughs) A healthy balance. Exactly. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Oh my gosh. Okay. Um, well, should we move into the word of the week since we have a pretty jam-packed episode? I am really excited about our topics today. I'm going to have to issue a like apology statement to you, I think. Last night, I was also distracted by the summer intern party. So I was like skimming and I had to check in with you and be like, are we sure we want to do the shrimp one? And you're like, yeah, no. Not, you didn't say I felt strongly about it, but you were standing your ground. You're like, yeah, no, I want to cover it. So I was like, okay. And then I... Um, read it again and I realized I have so much to say about it. It's actually my favorite article this week, I think. I am very excited to touch on it. So we have good articles for you guys. We have the interview coming up. Um, So let's just move into our word of the week and then we can get discussing. All right. So the word of the week this week is dulcet. It is an adjective, a soothing and pleasant sound. In the morning, we woke up to the sun's gentle warmth filling the room accompanied by the dulcet trill of birds. Dulcet. Mm-hmm. Is that am I saying that right? Dulcet. Um, I yeah. mean, one way you said it, a little flourish, and the other way you said it a little flat. Less but flourish. yeah, I think you said <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, the second way was a little uh, dulcet way of saying, or the first way was a dulcet way of saying it. I'm not gonna lie. This morning when I woke up with no kids, I was missing the dulcets mm-hmm. of children's laughter in the mm-hmm. morning down I the was hallway. Very, yeah, it's yes. very missing that. So because that's okay, how my house sounds week. in the morning too. <laughs> Dull set. <laughs> yeah, I thought. I feel like there's a lot of ways to use it if you are immersed in a job outside working with nature. So I thought it was fitting for the discos. Very different than last week's yammering. Mm, yeah, like we are on like opposite spectrums here. You're mm-hmm. all over the place with our word of the week. Yeah, I think I live in a world of yammering, and I may be trying to get to a world of dulcet. Hmm. Good. Okay. All right. Let's jump into our articles. But before we do, you mentioned that we are sponsored today by Case. I want to give a shout out to Case and to the men and women at Case IH. Farming is a way of life, a life they live every day on millions of acres across North America. Get to know the farmers who work at Case IH and see how they bring that perspective into everything Case IH does. Visit builtbyfarmers.com to see their stories and to even share your own. Built by Farmers, Case IH, a proud sponsor of the Discover Ag podcast. And I have to say, Case did a sponsor post with New York Farm Girls. You guys, it was like so good. I missed it. I actually have been off social media for almost three days now. Oh my gosh. Are you feeling okay? Yeah. Should mm-hmm. we take your temperature? Feel actually Is it because the, the summer I turned pretty? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, actually, I mean, I had a full load. I just, social media didn't full, fit in there. Full schedule. Mm-hmm. Moving into our first article this week, you guys title, Are We Watching the Extinction of Georgia Peaches Unfold? They call Georgia the peach state for a reason. Since the fuzzy fruit was first introduced to the South by Franciscan monks in the 16th century, it's become one of the state's top agricultural products. In an average year, the state produces around 130 million pounds of peaches, but not in 2023. In fact, you can probably expect less than 10% of the average crop this year. Extreme weather conditions, namely a warm winter and two frosts in March, almost entirely decimated Georgia's peaches. Pause, please. I just like had to. I could not read this article without singing that song. I made Daniel listen to it in the truck last night the entire way home from the lake because I was like, I just, this song is going to be stuck in my head all week. So it's obviously you, Justin Bieber is getting his peaches in in Georgia. It's funny if you Google Georgia peaches, that is like the first That's top what comes Like up. it took me forever to find article, like other articles to read. <laughs> it's like, okay, we have a show cold on this. Bieber, okay. 
<laughs> so it's not just Georgia either. South Carolina is predicted to lose 75% of their crop as well. So what's funny is I was actually at the grocery store um, this weekend. I was making peach cobbler for dessert. Got the recipe from She Likes Milk on Instagram. Highly recommend. Um I couldn't find peaches. I had to buy frozen peaches because I could not find peaches in the grocery store. And I feel like for this time of year, that's absolutely unheard of. I was listening to a podcast and she was talking about how she goes to her local farmer's market for these peaches that she really loves. And then she, that opens at eight. And she said last time she went to like the peach place and it was like eight ten, and they were all gone. And she's like, what is going on? And now I wonder... I hadn't read these articles before I listened to podcast. It was like early last week. And now I wonder if so many grocery stores are out in that area that people are like saturating the farmer's markets for their fruit, peaches mainly. And then that's probably what happened to her. Some good news. California peaches are thriving. So Justin Bieber might be getting his peaches from California and his weed in California. And New Jersey peaches are doing well. So there is still some other options. It's just kind of scary to think like, you know, they use the word extinction in the title of the article that like a state that is known for peaches could like not produce them. Like if the farmers can't make it through this, you know, bad crop, not having profit, like it could decimate it. Yeah, so I read the there was a statistic in the title or the intro, but it was backwards. And I don't think it if you're not paying attention, it doesn't sound as um, severe as it is. So horticulturists at the University of Georgia say roughly 90% of the peach state crop has been destroyed. And the article says it reversely, they say you can expect less than 10%. So I just feel like hearing that 90% is what has been destroyed is really important. Um, why is because peaches require a minimum number of chill hours. You have to be below 45 degrees to set the fruit. Who knew? Who knew? I just love highlighting the intricacies of ag like that. I feel like agriculture is just a series of the tiniest things that have to take place for it all to come together. You know, it's nature and it's crazy. It is crazy. Maddie is adding her two cents that she lives by Fredericksburg and it's a huge peach area. And so she's curious if they've experienced anything with, you know, crazy winters. Um, I mean, I feel like this year, I don't know, maybe we say that every year. I do feel like this year, though, it has been some crazy weather across the country from California. I mean, we covered that already, like to this, like there's definitely some different weather and patterns that are disrupting like the normal flow of where you're getting different fruits and vegetables or fruit trees and those kind of things. And they're predicting that this will cost the state $200 million in job loss and revenue loss. I did not write that set down. I saw it, but I knew you would because you're like the number girly of this duo. I feel like you always really highlight that economic portion. And I'm going to let you do that because, you know, economics was my lowest grade of my college education. You know, I could take OCHEM and all of the classes I needed for pharmacy school. But by golly, I could barely pass economics. Going back to what you said, I want to pull it out because you were talking about the weather. And you're right, Georgia is like, this is not the first state to experience a crop loss. We've talked about Texas and cotton and so many other things have been making the headlines because of different weather. And so I have a question to pick or ask you, and I'm not sure if you're going to want to answer it. But do you feel like it bothers you then when articles like this talk about or use, quote, climate change, quote, in the title or make the article kind of about that. There was a quote in there from an agriculture climatologist at UGA that said, we know winters are getting warmer and there's no explanation other than human caused global warming. I have a spectrum of feelings about that use. It's not a surprise, right? Like in the world we live in, it's no surprise that that's what they're going to turn to and that's what they're going to do. I think, though, that sometimes they miss a different piece of this story. Like, I don't think there was a single Georgia peach farmer interviewed in this article. Like, how is it affecting them? What do they plan on doing next year? Are they going to try to do something different? Are they moving to a different state? Like, I just, I'm tired, I think, of every article that the only point of the story is like, hashtag climate change. Like, where is all of the other piece of this story? I th- I think that's my issue with it. It's not that I, I know that this is the world we live in and the climate change part of it, but there's more to this story than climate Could change. Could not agree more. I actually hate that it overclouds, I feel like, a lot of the important topics. And you hinted on two of them that I wrote down that I want to talk about. Um, Actually, three things I want to talk about that you kind of hinted at. So you mentioned that an armor or 
Farmer was not interviewed in the article and there was not. So I tried to find one. There was. And it was interesting. Um, the article I did find talked about a, it was only one farmer, a specific farmer. And he had said that his staff will be down to 40 members oh from the gosh. typical 250 employees. Um, they're talking about the last time he says he remembers this happening in his area was in 1955. He said he... Um, it was like when his grandfather was, you know, running their farm. Um, and then it talked very, very minutely. It mentioned that his business has diversified since then and growth, including a pecan crop or pecan. I don't know how people say it. And I thought that was really interesting because those are all such important things to talk about, like employment and agriculture, our connection to mother nature and how we're at like literally her mercy, which gets into the whole topic of mental health and agriculture and why it is uh, so heavy on so many farmers and then the diversification portion, like uh, why it is so important and why so many operations are starting to diversify because of things like this. I agree. The piece of this, of kind of my last point, I think I had some other stats, but this is my last big thing I want to cover is the USDA is going to issue a federal relief grant. So essentially help with some subsidies for like crop loss. And I feel like subsidies get put portrayed in the media so terribly all the time. And we will actually get into subsidies a little in our next article, something I want to cover. I think it's crucial for our food security in this nation to support farmers through a bad year so that we continue to have farmers from the U.S. Oh, 100% agree. I thought about subsidies too. And yes, it is a very triggering word. We'll probably, I'm sure we have discos listening that some will hate even hearing the word subsidy and want to remove from the food system as a farmer and rancher themselves. And then you'll have a farmer or rancher on the opposite end of the spectrum that um, firmly believes and sees exactly like this. Why? I mean, this, I don't know if you would call that. I mean, that's a little, this funding is a little bit different than like a quote unquote traditional subsidy, but it is like, gen, you know, you could kind of group it under the same umbrella, right? It's basically helping, you know, monetary supplying funds when something happens beyond your control. Um, so yeah, it is very controversial, but it is a great, a great portrayal of why it is important or forms of them are at least. The last thing I'll want to say that I think um, again was hinted at, but never pulled out. There was mentioned in one of the articles that growers are experimenting with new varieties that need fewer chill hours. Um, mm. And my mind went to again, very controversial topic and they didn't specifically say GMOs, but you guys, GMOs. <laughs> it is an example of why, if you are very curious and don't understand why people would use GMOs or mess around with GMOs or why you think they're important, this is an example. So this does not exist, I'm saying, but they would look at creating a GMO of the peach that if Georgia's temperatures now are fluctuating like that, they would mess around so that it, you know, it's not required. Like they said, that it needs fewer chill hours or can withstand chill better or like whatever that, you know, cross or the new genes look like, that is the point of it so that we still have food despite, again, mother nature. So we're starting this out with a bang and a lot of controversy. Mm-hmm. All on that note. Want to move into the next controversial article? Yep, let's move <laughs> right into shrimping in Louisiana. <laughs> Which I said this earlier, but I'm just really obsessed with this article. So the title is Cheap Imports Leave U.S. Shrimpers Struggling with Starvation Wages. So it was an expose piece written by Civil Eats. I feel like Civil Eats is um, very notorious for writing these kinds of pieces. You know, they're less like news facts and a little bit more about like uncovering and unveiling and just... um I don't know, portraying different angles than besides just news, I think. <clears throat> so anyway, this one's about the shrimping industry and the people who are stepping up really to be a voice for the industry um, and basically earn livable shrimping wages. And that is like the most condensed basic form of it because um, it's really about so much more beyond that and a lot of nuance and details. So I'm not sure where you want to start. I think there's a lot of different angles to talk about this. Yeah, this was a long article. I was, when I was reading it again in the truck with Daniel, I was like, holy cow. Like, I, it took me a while to get through this, and there's so many different tangents. I do want to say one thing. We have an episode coming out on August 8th. It'll be episode 106, and it is where we debunk Seaspiracy. And we brought on um, an expert from fisheries, and it was it's a really good episode. I hope you guys will tune in, learn more about fishing. Um, I feel like all weekend I was dropping facts that we learned from Valentine about fishing. So just stay tuned for that. 
But where I want to start, I think, is kind of what you said, that they are paying to work. Um, Their break-even is way higher. And it kind of reminds me like the dairy industry right now is doing that. Our break-even is about $20 per 100 pounds of milk. And milk price for July was $13. So for every 100 pounds of milk, we're losing $7. So I I think this article, that's probably why I wanted to keep it is because I think that it just touched on a lot of similarities in other sectors of ag as well. Yeah, they actually had photos taken of a rally that someone went to or a protest, I guess, or... Um, They're protesting. And yeah, some of the signs and the images were... Um, I don't know. They just really hit you in the heart. Um, we can get us into a second, but a lot of it, um, I guess, could be tied to like... Um, race or ethnicity a lot of at least this article featured shimpers that shrimpers uh, i said chimpers um <laughs> at the rally that hailed from cajun vietnamese and cambodian communities yep. um, and really pulled um out that aspect and talked about um the age and the background and you know something's familiar in agriculture you know not i mean i feel like it's a, like that in a lot of industries but it is that is the way they live that is you know i was talking about how their houses are built, you know, along the water. And that's just what it's been like that way from generation to generation to generation. And so I thought it was really nice to see, you know, that highlighted and touched on. Um, I did want to talk about this because you just mentioned this, but they at one point in the article, they were talking about a quota, which that's what the dairy industry does, right? Yeah, uh, some dairy co-ops have implemented like quota system or base systems where you can't go over your base. Uh, That's kind of interesting, though, because I feel like that's not the issue here. We're not like over shrimping. Uh, we're over importing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which I thought is interesting because you and I do take a stance a lot that is, um, I wouldn't say we're like for the global marketplace of the way agriculture is. Um, but I think we see the reality of necessity. Of it. Yes. Yeah. But it's because most of the times you need imports to actually meet, like you said, the quota, fill the demand. Like we wouldn't be able to feed people without sometimes like the that importation exportation that we have going on and like you said in this case it is it really shed my open my eyes shed a light on you know the dangers of importation and exportation i mean essentially which we can dive into right now if you want to but that's the reason this is happening is because i mean they spoke specifically about was it somewhere in uh where was it I think they pointed out um, Asia, shrimp farms in Asia yeah, have grown to dominate the global industry over the last two decades. And so those shrimp imports coming to the U.S. basically just taken taken over because of the price. Yeah, so they can... The pink tsunami. Yeah, they can offer it at much lower prices and our U.S. farmers just simply can't comply. We're importing more shrimp into the U.S. than we ever have. And it's kind of this is where I really struggle is we put a lot of regulations, pressures on our U.S. farm supply because, right, like we want to have best agriculture, you know, highest standards, you know, all these different things. And what happens is we price ourselves out of the market here in the United States. And that's exactly what's happening. And they were talking about how a lot of these imports, they're supposed to be, um, let me find it. Uh, the vast majority, 98% of imported seafood does not receive any testing for contaminations before entering the U.S. market. And so there's just, if the U.S. farmers have to go through all this testing, I do think that the imported product should have to be held to the same standards. And then it gets into the labeling conversation because I think that's what everyone then thinks is like, well, why don't we just label it? And there actually is a law about you're supposed to mark in your restaurants whether your fish is imported or not, but it's not enforced, which is like a whole nother issue. Like it is a very, this is not like straightforward conversation. No, you guys, I would highly recommend reading this article. It's linked in our show notes um, because we are not going to be able to give it due due diligence and the amount of time we have. But yeah, I wrote down like my big takeaway from this article was that I'm going to do my job now to find USA sourced uh, fish, I guess. I mean, in this case, it's shrimp, but for fish in general, I feel like it's something I'm going to try and do. And that is not just wild caught. This, I feel like this is actually a really good example, which we talk about with Valentine on our CCRC debunking. She was saying you could have a really amazing farmed, you know, facility 
that could be way better than one that is ran in the wild caught, you know, and I, we dive into this, the whole wild caught versus farmed on there. So I'm not going to go into it here, but I think that in this case, I felt like this article pointed out to me that it doesn't matter if you're doing wild or farmed, what's matter is in this case, the U S label. And you're right. I did think it was really interesting to see examples of the labeling pulled out, which I just, Oh, the more I read about labels, the more I hate labels. They are for marketing. You guys, I cannot tell you, more blatantly and straightforward that marketing is not for the consumer anymore to help tell them what is in the product or help them make an informed decision. It is to sell the product. It is a marketing tactic. It is not an information tactic. They were talking about gold shrimp um, and how that is not, it's a very generic term. It is not regulated. It does not mean it's not referring to the Gulf of Mexico per se. They were talking about Louisiana shrimp. Doesn't even mean it came from Louisiana. It could mean that it's like simply Cajun, like seasoned. Like it was so convoluted and I felt so um, the opposite of transparent. I mean, I felt it very deceiving the way the labels could be. And so I was like, I feel like all that matters is that you're trying to actually just get USA fish, in this case, shrimp. Yeah. And the number one imported seafood is shrimp. The other thing I really focused on, I thought, because they did do such a good job of, again, it really focused on, I mean, the core of it is that they are working for very minimal wages. There was a quote in there that say, when shrimpers say that they are working for starvation wages, they are not lying. And so often we forget that there are three legs to the sustainability stool. Everyone loves to focus on the climate leg. That's all they care about. Carbon reduction, methane reduction, anything for the environment. And it's like, there is other important pillars to sustainability. One of them being what Tara and I excel in is economics, you guys. <laughs> but no, seriously, economics, that's one of the other pillars. And this is like, it has to be economically viable. And carbon reduction is not more important than the issues these guys are going through for a livable wage. If not in our, like, when is carbon more important than a human life, you know, trying to feed themselves? And so I'm just like, Thank you for bringing point that like we cannot get so focused. You and I say this all the time. We cannot focus so heavily on on the environmental pillar and lose sight of everything else because great, you know, whatever environmental issue has been solved because we did whatever it takes, but we just unraveled and skipped over so many more other important issues. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that a lot of the wives have to have quote unquote land jobs, kind of similar to a lot of farmers we know that have off the farm jobs. Like we know that happens so often so that you can have um, health insurance and all these other things. And one of the things I had never thought of is there is no farm bill for like seafood industry. There's no farm bill for shrimpers. And so going to the subsidy conversation, like there, like there's nobody to help them out. Like you were talking about the rally that they went to or like the strike. Somebody was like, yeah, we would love to strike quote unquote but like we're self-employed so striking so we're just doing a rally and trying to get media attention to like highlight this issue and so there is not a lot of support for them and ultimately that means we're going to lose u.s shrimpers like we won't have u.s shrimp anymore yeah i mean this article i don't want to call it doom and gloom because that is definitely not it was but i do feel like it's definitely saying that they are very close to being on the brink of extinction and that's actually one of my last points is what you just highlighted that uh the president of the louisiana shrimp association said that before this rally the shrimpers were considering going on strike but he feared this could risk pushing the teetering independent businesses over the edge he said if we go on strike we're only going to hurt ourselves he said if a guy's hungry and needs to pay his bills I'm not going to tell him he can't. And so I just really, my heart broke. I feel like there weren't a ton of options for them. And there's a couple stats about um, the U.S. had over 10,000 licensed commercial shrimpers in 2000. And by 2020, um, it dropped to just 4,300. So they really are, because we are close. Like if this does not change or, you know, something has to be different, um, I'm not sure what like the next 10 years looks like for the shrimping industry, which is pretty crazy. Yeah. The last thing I'll say before we get to our next article is I know some of them are pivoting to direct to consumer sales, which is something we are seeing in so many pieces. Like, you know, we work with Good Ranchers for that exact reason so that you can have American meat delivered. Like that is their slogan. And I, I, and I did see one older guy that he was like, I'm 64. I do not want to get into direct to consumer, but I do think that's going to have to be an option for more and more people. If you truly want to know the source of your food is you're going to have to have a direct to consumer sourced, especially for meat. I really think I feel very strongly about our meat animal ag industry being United States. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it. Um, I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole of the direct to consumer because you're right. What stood out to me is that one of them was like, my job is to go catch them. So now you're making me a wholesale dealer and all these other things. He's like, that's not what I do. I just want to go catch them. And you're, there is a line where it's like, you're going to have to do more. But then again, at the end of the day, when people ask like, why doesn't everyone just start a direct to consumer? Like, why isn't every ranch just a direct to consumer? And you're kind of like, that's the reason why there are just farmers and ranchers who just want to farm and ranch. Agreed. All right. You want to tee us up? Yeah. Um, all right, you guys, transitioning into our last and final article you need to know this week. Raw milk is being legalized in more states. Is it safe? Question mark. Health experts warn that drinking it could come with risks. And now I'm going to do what you do with me whenever I have a slight area of expertise in an article. I'm going to say I watched Pretty Little Liars, or not Pretty Little Liars, <laughs> but Summer I Turned Pretty and did nothing. So take it away, New Mexico <laughs> Milkmaid. Oh my gosh. Okay, so maybe I should give just my background briefly. Maybe you guys have heard it, but I have drank, grew up drinking raw milk, drank raw milk, um, not in college, obviously, because I wasn't off the dairy. Um, continued drinking raw milk when I moved in, you know, onto Daniel's family farm, and I drank it all the way up until I was pregnant with Guinevere, and then decided to move into pasteurized, you know, conventional store-bought milk. Um, I want to say I feel good. At, like I feel so strongly that conventional pasteurized milk is an amazing product. Um, with that being said, we can get into this article. So, so I feel like, yeah, I have experience on both. I don't, I'm not here to knock one or the other, but more than two dozen states have legalized raw milk. But let me give you a couple stats of why this is an issue. Uh, they looked over 20 years and raw milk got just under 3,000 people sick, caused just under just over 200 hospitalizations and three deaths. And the issue is, is the states that legalized raw milk have three times as many outbreaks related to milk as the states that prohibit it. You are more likely to get sick from raw milk. And my entire issue with it is if you get sick from raw milk, you paint all of milk in a bad light instead of just raw milk. And that's my problem. I do think your history is interesting because judging from like your social media profile, I mean, you are very pro like conventional grocery store or like whatever you get from the shelf. And so I do think it's always surprises people when they hear that you drank raw milk for like 20 plus years of your life and are kind of coming at this from like, I guess, twofold experience. I think you skipped something that's important for listeners, which can you talk about pasteurization and homogenization? Because that is the differences between raw milk and not like conventional store-bought, right? It's just that that has the, you know, grocery store has been pasteurized and it has been homogenized, right? Raw milk would be like straight out of the tank, which means it is not pasteurized and is not homogenized. Straight out of the tank Hit. teat tank no because it's <laughs> cooled down first so and it goes through a filter uh when it gets oh, into shoot. the tank so straight from the tank and um yeah people forget about the homogenization portion because i will hear so many people say it tastes really good chances are it could be a higher fat content so at the grocery store what you buy it's over just over three percent fat so you see one percent you see two percent and then you see whole whole does not mean it's 100 percent. it means it's just over three percent fat um but that's a standardization right because we want milk to be like standard across the board across the country so if you are getting non-homogenized milk there may be some differences in like cream level and so sometimes when people tell me how good raw milk tastes i'm like it has nothing to do with the pasteurization and probably more to do with the homogenization so homogenization is basically where they like break up the components of milk so that milk stays consistent. If it's not homogenized, the cream will rise to the top and you have to like when you're a kid, you grab the milk jug out of the fridge and you shake it. I bet every dairy kid that drank raw milk is picturing this right now. If you forget to shake it, you end up with heavy cream on your cereal instead of milk. And so that's one of the differences. And then pasteurization is simply the process of heating up the milk. It's like cooking a steak. Like it does not remove the nutrients. You heat it up to kill any bad bacteria and then it is cooled back down. There is ultra pasteurization, which is different, which is something newer, and it makes more shelf-stable milk. Um, you'll see that where it has really long expiration dates, and it's heated up to a little bit even higher temperature and then cooled back down. But you're talking, it's heated for like two seconds. And I, I'm not exaggerating, like literally two seconds it's heated and then it's brought back down. But that is what proponents of raw milk will say is that the pasteurization zaps the nutrients from milk, right? And the raw yes. milk could help you know, like boost your immune system or... Do you want me to get into that? Right? Yeah. 
I do want to get you to, I didn't say that. It's just that we could move on to another topic. (laughs) Okay. So uh, they think pasteurization removes nutrients. There is not one scientific study that is based on that. And I realize people have anecdotal evidence. I'm not disagreeing with that. Um, But I think that there is this really cool study about the farm effect in kids. I think I've told you about it, about looking at the Hutterites versus the Amish. People always say that kids that drink raw milk and raw milk is so good for you because it has gives you less asthma, less allergies because you're exposing your body to things. So they did a study on the Irish or sorry, the Amish and the Hutterites, and they live very similar lifestyles and they drink raw milk. The main difference is the Amish live very close to their dairy barn and the Hutterites live off the farm in communal livings. Hutterites kids have the same level of allergies and asthmas as like urban counterparts, even though they drink raw milk. And so I do think sometimes people see the benefits, quote unquote, of raw milk, and they take it as just the raw milk when really there's all these other factors. Our kids are around being around cattle is one of the most important things for reducing asthma and allergies. Um, You know, being exposed to more dirt, more pathogens, just naturally farm kids. And so that quote unquote farm effect, I think people like to like chalk it up to raw milk when there's a million other factors that go into that. I will say, playing Natalie advocate, that um, food studies and are just hard in general. Like I can see why they don't have a food study, though, maybe supporting or highlighting anything that is beneficial or pro about raw milk because it's so hard to isolate you guys just one factor in one person's entire life and like keep everything the same controlled between group a and b and just have raw milk be the differences and so i mean i'm not surprised when you say there are no scientific studies that show you know either the benefits or the detriments if you were talking about like the detriments of you know traditional store shelf milk because i just think food studies are nearly impossible to like curate essentially You just can't put people in bubbles like that. Yeah. um, I will link that study when we share the articles on our Instagram stories because it's a fascinating study. If you want to learn more about that, I highly, highly recommend it. Um, So I think my biggest point here is if you choose to to drink raw milk, whoa, can't talk. Um, If you choose to drink raw milk, you need to accept the risk that that comes with. Is the risk exponential? No. Most people are fine. If you're a high-risk community, pregnant, young children, immunocompromised, elderly, then that can be different. You can have an even higher risk. But I think you can't, like, if you get sick, you can't go around then saying like, oh, well, now I don't drink milk because, you know, it got me sick. Like, it's just like if you eat raw seafood or if you ate a raw steak, you are inherently taking a risk. I do think it's crazy, though. I do have to take a stance. You and I stand for food choice. And I do think it's crazy that it is illegal in some states. And I get why. We've already highlighted and talked about... I Okay. I don't get why that came out wrong. Uh, I don't even know how to like properly say it because I understand when rules and regulations, I, I guess, are put in place um, for like health safety concerns, which is what this would be for. Like there, It is illegal in some states because of the risks associated with drinking raw milk. But it is crazy to me, the things we have legal in our system, um, other foods we have on the shelf that people can buy, but in some states you cannot source raw milk. That is crazy to me. Yeah, I just see it both ways though. Like if you think about the states that have, they said it's three times more likely to have hospitalizations, which is obviously still a low number. And I think that is other people's argument. And and I don't agree with, or I don't disagree with you. There are so many pieces of our food system that are very gray. Like why is this like a hard stance? I just always wonder, like how would you feel if people were consuming literally not cooked steak and getting sick and ending up in the hospital? And then that's your news headline. You know, raw steak gets another person sick. Like it is a PR nightmare, a public health nightmare. Like it's just, there's like a lot of layers of complexity with it. I think I'm on the, I'm fully on the same page with you about that. I just think it's interesting that like as a youth, you could go in and buy cigarettes when you're, is it 18? Yeah, 18. Totally. And um, they're like vaping. You can go in and get a vape now like that. That's, um, but like if I had to choose between what <laughs> raw milk, the yeah. I'd rather have, pick up a, a <laughs> bottle of raw milk at the age of 18 than go in and buy a pack of cigarettes at the age of 18. And so I think that's where I was coming yeah. at from. And that's like a little bit outside of the food system, obviously, when you're talking about like drugs and stuff. But that's what I meant when I said it's just crazy totally. what we have access to that is considered legal and raw milk is considered illegal. But like you said, I understand why it's that way. Kind of. I don't know. 
Maddie had a comment and I do always compare it to sushi. This is something I think she's must have heard me say this before. But like if you choose to consume raw milk, like make sure the dairy is doing the testing. Sometimes they'll do additional tests beyond what I mean, all dairies test their milk to quality standards, all of those things. Sometimes if they're going to sell raw milk, they'll do some additional testing to check for extra things um, that wouldn't be a problem with pasteurized. And so it's just like if you eat sushi, like I am not eating sushi on the side of the road, you know, wherever off of a food truck. Same with raw milk, right? Like make sure they're sterilizing their bottles. They have, you know, just they're going above and beyond to ensure that, you know, the milk that's getting to you is of highest quality. Any other last and final words, New Mexico Milk Made? Yeah. On this topic? I made raw milk butter this week and it was phenomenal. Ooh. Yep. And I mixed it with garden peppers. Mm, 10 out of 10. Highly recommend. Put it right on garlic bread, sourdough garlic bread. Real winner. There is nothing more you than raw milk butter combined with hot New peppers, Mexico chili peppers, or what? Yeah, what? Like that is, if you were a food, that would be my food. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right, you guys, that wraps up our topics for today. Time to get into our interview with Ann Rattle from Neutral. Anne is a climate scientist by training, hailing from a fifth-generation ranching and farming family. As head of carbon reduction at Neutral, Anne spearheads sustainability and climate change initiatives aimed at reducing our carbon footprint. Currently, Anne manages a portfolio of on-farm projects that over their lifetime will reduce or remove more than 150,000 metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalent. Before joining Neutral, she spent more than 15 years leading climate change initiatives for major consulting firms and corporations, including Fortune 500, Nike, and Coca-Cola. Anne, welcome to Discover Ag. Thanks so much for having me. We are so excited that you're here to join us. And so I kind of want to start at the beginning and ask you, like, what was the initial idea or the thought behind starting Neutral, starting this food company? Well, first, thanks so much for having me. We so appreciate your, your support and interest in learning more about what we're building at Neutral. So, the impetus for neutral really started from this growing <laughs> consensus that people are deeply concerned about the effects of climate change. And I think part of that means that for a lot of folks, there's a growing awareness that we can um, support producers and production systems of <laughs> support producers and food systems that are either contributing to or mitigating the effects of climate change. And so the idea behind neutral is that like the organic movement, carbon neutral or, carb or climate smart foods could be the next food movement. Um, so we think that there's a role for a new kind of company to provide carbon neutral staples. We're all about meeting folks with where they're at. We know that more than 93% of US households, for example, still buy dairy and meat. And so we really wanted to kind of serve this growing climate concerned demographic with alternatives and, um, yeah. And at our core is really our close partnership with producers. Yeah. I know that that is kind of the core, like you said, of actually neutral is the farmer relationship. Um, so maybe we can dive a little bit into that and we can talk about, you know, how many farms you work with, um, maybe what it actually looks like uh, at the farm level. I think that's probably a big question people have. I think they're really drawn to the product. They want to know more about the product. Um, like it's interesting, carbon neutral, but like, what does that mean? How do we get there? Great question. We get we get that a lot. So starting neutral, our first two products were or are um, organic, two percent, and whole milk. And so when we talk about the farmers that we're work, that we're primarily working with, it tends to be um, relatively small, pasture based, organic dairies. Uh, we source from about 170 of those across the United States. So that gives you a sense of kind of who's the demographic that we're that we're working with. Um, but to provide a little bit more context for that work. Being a carbon neutral food company means that we need to use the best available science and math and innovation to both accurately measure the climate impact of our products, but then completely eliminate that. And so our our path to carbon neutral begins with this you know, deeply conservative and rigorous accounting or life cycle assessment of the carbon emissions associated with our milk, which includes everything, and I should say greenhouse gas emissions associated with our milk. Uh, we we refer to it as carbon for short, but of course we're talking about methane and nitrous oxide as well. But our life cycle assessment or LCA 
gives us a deep understanding of where are those climate impacts occurring? Everything from what the cows are eating to how that manure is managed to the types of transportation we're using to you know, how much of a shopper's grocery cart is filled with milk as opposed to other things? How far are they typically driving to the store to, is that carton going to be recycled or landfilled at the end of life? So that detailed scientific model of our product's carbon footprint is developed by a gentleman named Dr. Greg Toma. He's at Colorado State, part of the Agnex program. He's a real singular expert. He spent 15 years of his career trying to answer what's the carbon footprint of a gallon of milk. So we feel really fortunate to have him guiding us here. So our LCA or our carbon footprint times our sales gives us our total climate impact. And then the work of our company is to systematically eliminate that. So when we, the, the beating heart of our company is really helping our producers decarbonize. We do use offsets, especially as like being an early kind of having a product to sell at point of sale where we say, yep, it's definitively carbon neutral. We did, we did need to purchase carbon offsets to get there, but we know that that's just absolute table stakes in any conversation about carbon neutral, that the real work and our reason to exist is the partnership that happens with our farmers. So going back to our LCA, our LCA tells us that about a third of a farm, that 72% of the emissions in our, in our milk happen on farm. So we're not going to meaningfully get to carbon neutral unless we focus by working with farmers and on the farm, about a third of the emissions are associated with uh, enteric methane or the byproduct of ruminant digestion, right? The belches that are coming from cows putting methane. A third is related to how manure is managed, and a third is related to how feed is produced. So with that in mind, we support really diverse projects on farm that reduce emissions associated with each of those pillars by changing what cows eat, by changing how manure is managed and how feed is produced. You touched on a lot of things. I like have so many questions, so many like areas, especially from like the dairy side. I love that you talked about that the reason you started with milk is because you were meeting people where they were at. And I think one thing we talk about on the podcast that people often think like there's this like narrative online that dairy is dead. And as you said, over 90% of households are still buying milk. So it's really, really great statistics. Um, but one of the things you did talk about was getting started and that there were challenges. So what was the hardest part of getting started? I don't know that there's one thing that was so hard, but there's certainly a lot of ahas that we had along the way. So for example, uh, are producers going to want to work with us? Are we going to have, what are those first early stage conversations going to be? Are folks going to feel like we're telling them they're part of the problem? If we say IPCC data tells us that 37% of global emissions come from agriculture associated land use change and our food system generally, right? Like that's the most comprehensive accounting. That framing of the problem that we're trying to solve is going to put some people off. We're like, I'm just trying to feed the planet. Okay. And I think one of the things that's been most helpful is that are, are most kind of gratifying looking back on our journey is we've never had a bad conversation with a farmer because we show up and every farmer who we talk to has a laundry list of sustainability improvements that he or she want to make happen. They might not necessarily know where those improvements intersect with opportunities to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but that's pretty cool, right? Like the, the willingness of the producers, once they find out, Hey, we're not going to tell you to adopt these practices and, you know, if they're successful, then we might pay you a premium. We are going to help. We are going to invest in those practices. We're going to bring together the consultants that you say, the advisors that are you value and helping you make sure that when you're adopting or transitioning to a climate smart practice, that you feel really confident that's the right thing for your operation. And as necessary, we're going to do all of the project management and the measurement monitoring and verification on your behalf. And so I think what was hardest, like bottom line up front, like what was hardest was putting table stakes in the ground up front of we are going to be a carbon neutral dairy company, not knowing exactly who's going to want to work with us and what are the interventions of interest and how do we get to that verified third party certified climate benefit. So building that infrastructure and like moving through that with people <laughs> who begin day one of their job succession planning, right? Like, Farmers and ranchers are in it for the long haul. There's not a lot of appetite for like, oh, I'll just try this. <laughs> like you really need to be very thoughtful and methodical and like really do the hard work up front so that you all have a lot of confidence holding hands, implementing that solution together. And I think building that approach has been the hardest thing, but also the coolest thing. You know, you had a couple of sound bites in there, Anne, that I think were definitely music 
to a lot of farmers ears. So (laughs) thank you. Um, You mentioned the third party verification. Maybe we can share a little bit more and touch on that because you guys I know have invested into a pretty rigorous or, you know, high quality, um, you know, company to do this verification for you. So let's dive into that. Yeah. So when it comes to the work that we're doing on farm, as I mentioned, we're we're reducing emissions by changing what cows are eat. So just to put a little like I'll put like a little bit more concrete around this and then I think it'll help us make better sense of who who are the right third parties that we intersect to be like, hey, make sure that our science and math add up to substantiate all of our carbon neutral claims. So we reduce enteric methane by changing what cows eat. We as I mentioned, we reduce um, emissions associated with manure management by, for example, installing solid liquid separators. Uh, we're increasingly like dipping our toe into more of the solutions around like how can we improve how feed is raised by um, conventional dairies, for example, reducing synthetic fertilizer input is one example is one opportunity. So in each of those cases, depending on what is the solution or the project that we're co-developing with a farmer, that then dictates who's the right partner at a farm level to make sure that our projects are delivering on the emission reduction or removal that, that we hope they, that we hope they do. Right. So we might need a forester. If there's like a forestry related credit opportunity, we might need a nutritionist if it's related to using a feed supplement. So we have a third party involved in double checking our science and math as it relates to every single one of our on-farm projects. In addition, we have a, a, a third-party certification that's performed by a, a company called SCS, where we say, here's our LCA. Is it up to snuff with best standards, such as like ISO compliance? Here's how we're tracking our sales data. Double check our numbers. We think our math looks great, but make sure. Here's our on-farm projects and all of the approvals that we have gotten, hopefully, you know, at that point from, from third-party verifiers that say that our on-farm practices are actually delivering this climate benefit. Please look at all of this, which comprehensively adds up to a carbon neutral claim and make sure it makes sense for us. So the verifiers are one group, kind of an independent sporadic group, depending on the intervention. And then our third-party certifier for our kind of net carbon neutral claim is a company called SCS. So my question is, is when you got started with farms and even now when a farmer like comes to you or when you go to a farmer and say like, do you want to work with us? Like, what does that process look like? Like, especially now that you've kind of gotten established, are more farms coming to you saying, I want to be a part of this? Or are you like picking up the phone, cold calling farmers saying like, hey, (laughs) we'd love to work with you? You know, it's, it's a bit of both. It's a bit of both. And so in the, in the co-op, you know, we source our milk through existing co-ops. And so we have close relationships with those co-ops who oftentimes are our first um, referral of, hey, knowing the producers as well as we do, we think these five or 10 or 20 would be really interested in, in partnering with you. And so sometimes we have that kind of warm referral from a, from a cooperative. Um, and then the early conversation, like I said, is usually about really, it's a high touch relationship, right? It's like, what are your goals for your operation? These are the types of projects that we've d- developed, um, that we've developed. My favorite is we can say, here's a producer that we've worked with who adopted our feed supplement program that we'd love for you to talk to about his or her experience because that producer's <laughs> point of view and ability to vouch for how, you know who we are and how we work is, is really meaningful. So sometimes it's this kind of organic through our network, through our co-op. Um, in addition, we work with a lot of academic advisors. So some of the projects that we're investing in on farms, things like the manure management, those are kind of tried and true practices. We've got great relationships with established vendors. Sometimes those vendors say, hey, here's another farmer who we think, you know, you should, who is in your supply shed, who we think would be interested in having conversation with you. Sometimes for our more like earlier stage innovations, it might be our academic partners who might already have this kind of association with different dairy producers who they think would be good fits. I think that it's so important a part that part of it of what your company does of like actually helping the farmers with these financial decisions. I know like personally my husband and I have been looking into a karmic carbon reduction practice on our farm. And it's the cost, right? Like it's, I mean, it's a lot of money for us to invest in that. And so I just, I really do appreciate and love that piece of uh, neutral. Oh, well, thanks. I mean, I think it also is because I, our CEO is a former dairyman. I mean, I think you know, mentioned in the beginning, my, you know, my family has some deep agricultural roots in Nebraska as well. And so I think that there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of um, 
humility and respect that we want to bring into these conversations. And we know we're going to be successful to the extent that we're helping like pioneering producers do what they know is best for their operations. And so we're really seeking for those kind of like win-wins. Where can we solve their operational challenges and then also to deliver climate benefit? So a couple of times now you have mentioned organic, you know, working with organic farmers. I believe you guys are organic certified, correct? We sell organic and conventional milk. So we we like liked as a company to think about like where can we have the most impact at scale and we try to get beyond some of these like binaries like are you milk are you you know we, we want to say like we want to work with everybody we want to maximize scale and impact. And so we've actually been growing our, 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 our organic milk sales, I'd say are our greatest by volume, but we've also been growing our conventional milk sales and are really excited about some new kind of food service partners that we're, that we're working with like Shake Shack, for example. I've heard of them. <laughs> yeah. I've eaten there a time or two. <laughs> <laughs> so the next question that I wanted to follow up with that on is what products are coming out like in the future? What are you guys working on? Like what is the next steps for neutral? Yeah. So I'm so glad you asked. So we have our organic milk and our organic half and half, and those have been kind of our standby staples for quite some time. And then, as I mentioned, our conventional milk um, has been, has been really ramping up. It's been really exciting to see the, the, the appetite for carbon neutral staples from folks like, you know, different, different breweries and Shake Shack and kind of others who are, we have got a great partnership with a bakery chain Grand Central that we're really excited about. So that's been, that's been ramping up. And then we're also doing some really interesting work with a grass fed, grass finished uh, rancher in Eastern Oregon. And so we're, we're um, kind of in the middle of a seaweed supplementation trial, right? So there, so I'm sure folks know there's this like kind of like large and growing body of evidence that suggests that this one kind of see asparagopsis taxiformis when fed in really small amounts to animals can sig- re- significantly reduce enteric methane. Some of the studies in past trials suggest like 80% or more. Um, and while there's still more work to be done, there's also some early indicators that there might also be some benefits in terms of productivity. So this isn't something that's like guaranteed that there's like a feed conversion efficiency that you're necessarily going to gain with it, but it's something that some trials of the have shown that we're really excited by. So with this like pioneering grass-fed um, producer, we're looking at uh, yeah some like uh, some additional interventions of how would we deliver like what would carbon neutral beef look like? Well, how would we do that? And so it's a combination of working with someone who is a real leader. Her name's Corey Carmen, like a real leader in the regenerative agriculture space and thinking real, she's like a really unique voice and thinking about redefining the role of ruminants in the lands, in the landscape. And how do you manage impact for all of these ecosystem and potentially soil carbon benefits, as well as um, yeah, she's working with us on some, some really cool interventions that uh, will support our, our carbon neutral beef launch as well. You know, Anne, I just have to give you a shout out for how fluently you said that scientific name of seaweed. It just rolled <laughs> right off your tongue. It was very natural. Good job. Um, I want to end this on kind of a fun note that no one listening will know that is quite the um, accomplishment. You are a NASA research scientist. Can you give us the 411 about what it was like to be part of Team NASA. I mean, it's not often we get to talk to someone that was a part of such an amazing organization. Well, Natalie, you are officially hired as my hype woman. <laughs> and I need to also say this is, you know, now getting a little, I'm dating myself at this point, but it was a NASA fund. I contributed to a NASA funded research initiative called the Earth Observing System. So this was happening kind of in parallel to when folks were mapping the human genome. If that like helps this level set, it was like early 2000s. And at the time, there was desire and this, on the researchers working as a part of this mission, as they call it, to take the data that we had ready access to, field measurements of nutrient and carbon cycling at a small like forest stand level, for example, and use that data to validate these kind of new ways of knowing um, by using kind of remote sensing and delivering new remote sensing products and, and new, at the time, um, regional and global biogeochemical models. And so the idea was, how do we take the data that we have ready access to and validate that the models and this remote sensing data are giving this kind of one version of what this global carbon balance looks like? And so it was a part of trying to kind of make all of these like technologies and data sets speak to get speak fluently, if that if that makes sense. And so that was a really, yeah, it was a really fun um, 
a really fun lab. And I think, you know, spearhead by um, a gentleman at the University of Montana, Dr. Stephen Running, who went on to win the Peace Prize for his work as a part of his IPCC work. So he's really kind of the visionary behind that effort. And I was just happy to write along with him. How fun. We have the Nebraska connection and now we have the University of Montana connection. That's where I actually went to pharmacy school. So yeah, go Grizz. <laughs> Although I'm also a Bobcat. Um, well, Anne, thank you so much for uh, joining us today and sharing more about Neutral. Um, very interesting company. We're so excited to be partnering with you guys. Um, for everyone tuning in, as you guys have heard, Neutral partners directly with dairy farmers to provide expert guidance and financial support for Im- implementing climate smart practices on farms. So if you are a farmer or a rancher interested in partnering, be sure to visit their website at www.eatneutral.com. And then, of course, we'll link that in the show notes. And then if you are a consumer, you guys, you can find Neutral Nationwide at like Whole Foods, Sprouts. Um, where else? And plug some other places. Uh, Target on the West Coast. And then, yeah, you name it, we're in 80% of the natural grocer channel. So you can check a natural grocer near you and we'll more often than not be there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Anne. And thank you to all of you for listening to Discover Ag, where every week we discover what's new in the world of agriculture. And we will see you guys next week.